The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 16. And while you're turning over there, uh, in a moment when we pray, uh, Pastor Deacon mentioned briefly in, in his prayer, the North Group, we do want to pray for them tonight. As you know, we are, in, we are engaged in an effort to plant a church about an hour north of here. And some of our folks who are part of our congregation who live up there, are, that's where they are this evening. They're worshiping there. We, we're now having two worship services a month in the evening up there. And uh, so Pastor Paul is actually ministering the Word of God to them uh, this evening. And so we want to pray uh, specifically for them and for ourselves now as we uh, come uh, to God's word. Let me read, first of all, our text, our passage this evening, beginning in verse 25 of Acts chapter 16. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors opened, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are, we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you this evening for the privilege that we have to gather once again with your people, to worship you, to sing your praises, and now uh, to exercise our thoughts upon your holy word. We pray that your spirit would be given, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word this evening. We pray for the brethren as they gather up north. We pray that you would meet with them as they worship you and as your word is opened up by Pastor Paul. We pray for that work. We pray that indeed the day would soon come when a stable gospel-preaching church would be planted there and that many souls for generations to come, should the Lord tarry, would give praise to you for planting that church there. We pray, Father, that you would bless us, that you would do this for your glory's sake for your son's sake. We also pray for Pastor Nick this evening as he is away in Georgia ministering to the church in Savannah, that uh, the church where he once pastored planted. We pray that he would be able to comfort them and encourage them and that you'd bless his ministry among them. We pray that you'd bring him back safely as he travels back with a truck full of books that are headed to Nigeria. We pray, Father, you'd give him traveling mercies. Now, Father, bless us and help us to understand and to love and to believe your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this passage that I read to you, we have a, what's a very well-known account of the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And there's much here in this passage that's interesting. But what I want to focus on this evening is the answer given by Paul and Silas to this man when he asked the most important of all questions. The most important question that any person could ever ask, what must I do to be saved? 
What must I do to be saved? Saved. What, what does it mean to be saved? The word saved means to deliver, to rescue. And in the New Testament, it speaks of the rescue of sinners, the salvation of sinners. You see, it's a word that presupposes what the Scriptures declare, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there is none righteous, no, not one, that we are all guilty before God, condemned by His holy law and sentenced to hell, where we will suffer the punishment for our sins for eternity. It presupposes not only that we are under the guilt of our sins, but we are also under uh, the dominating, enslaving power and control of sin over our lives. We are alienated from God, guilty, condemned, and the slaves of sin. And we cannot save ourselves unless someone rescues us from this condition. We are without hope. The Scriptures tell us that this is the condition of all of us by nature. We need to be saved from our sins. Those who are saved are rescued from the guilt and punishment they deserve for their sins. They will never have their sins laid to their charge in the courtroom of heaven. They are all forgiven, fully, freely pardoned. Their bad record is blotted out of God's book forever And in the eyes of God's law, as we read in the catechism tonight, they are justified. They are counted as righteous, and they no longer need to fear death. They will never suffer in hell, but they have eternal life. This is what it means to be saved. To be saved is also to be rescued from the dominion of sin over your life. Uh, Praise God, when when a sinner is saved, he's not Uh, forgiven of all of his sins, just to be left where he was, continuing to wallow in them. No, his bad record is not only cleared in heaven, he also has his bad heart changed on earth. Being united to Christ, his sins have been forgiven, and he's justified, and he's also caused and enabled by God's grace to repent of his old life because the Holy Spirit comes to live within him and to begin to work in him to change him. And this salvation also involves one day being saved from the very presence of sin and from all of the remains of sin and all of the effects of sin forever in the world to come. In those God saves, he keeps to the end, where in glory they'll be perfectly free from all sin, spotless and pure, with glorified bodies and souls, reigning with him and rejoicing and serving him with him, uh, serving him in the new heavens and upon a new earth for all eternity. And this salvation is not only salvation from something, salvation from sin, it is salvation to something. It's a salvation that reconciles us to God and makes us his adopted children. And this is the highest and the greatest blessing of salvation. It is God himself known and enjoyed as our reconciled Father, when we are saved, we have peace with God, and nothing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God. So this is what it means to be saved. Well, in light of that, I trust we see then why the most important question that could ever be asked is, what must I do to be saved? How do I become a partaker of this wonderful salvation, the forgiveness of my sins, 
a right standing before God, freedom from hell and from the fear of death, deliverance from sin, slavery, reconciliation with God, eternal life in the glory of the world to come. How can I become a partaker of this great salvation? Well, here in our text, the answer to that question is given to us. And it's given in very simple, straightforward language. This is the very question that the jailer asked as he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And what was their answer to his question? Well, it's the same answer that we're given over and over and over again throughout the New Testament. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he adds, you and your household. Not because if he gets saved, that in itself will save his household. No, the idea is believe and you will be saved. And the same is true of your household. If they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. The same gospel that is for you is for them as well. It's for all men. It's for all women, all children, young and old. It's for everyone. Indeed, we see this later in verse 34. When we read, now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So this is not talking about infant baptism, all right? He believed, and his household believed. And so his whole household was full of joy that night. Why? Because on that very night, they were all saved. And they were saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. But now this brings us to what I want to focus on this evening. I want to focus on this matter of believing on the Lord Jesus. As most of you know, it is the repeated emphasis of Scripture that we are saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace, the Bible tells us. That is, it is a free gift of God that is received and becomes ours when we receive Jesus Christ. It is through faith in the Lord Jesus. The promises of salvation and eternal life are made to those who believe. John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. John 3.16, we're all familiar with that verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus said in John six forty seven, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Indeed, John tells us in chapter 20, verse 21, that this was the reason under the inspiration of the Spirit that he wrote his gospel record. He says, these are written that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Indeed, this is the purpose for which the whole Bible was written. That we might believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Acts 10.43, to him, to Christ, all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. Acts 13, 39, therefore let it be known to you that through this man, through the God man, through Christ, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified 
by the law of Moses. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Anyway, I could go on. We could go on and on with this. And again, we see it here in our opening text. When the Philippian jailer came in trembling before Paul and Silas, and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Their answer was the same, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Faith in Christ, believing on him, believing on the name, that is on the revelation of Jesus Christ as it is given to us in the gospel, believing on him as he is revealed to us in scripture is what brings the sinner into a saved condition and makes him a possessor of eternal life. While on the other hand, those who do not believe on Christ remain lost and condemned and eternal life does not belong to to them. John 3:36 He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. So I trust we see that faith in Christ, believing in Christ is absolutely essential. It is by faith in him that we are saved, and we can know that we have eternal life. Well, seeing this is so, I'm convinced that one of the great hindrances in the way of sinners being saved is a failure to see this and to understand what this means, and also one of the causes of a lack of assurance in some who do believe is confusion about this matter of saving faith. More specifically, in the time remaining this evening, there are certain particular truths concerning faith that I want to help all of us here to be clear about and to firmly understand. My purpose is not to say everything that could be said about faith and to give a full-blown exposition of it, but in the remaining time this evening, I simply want to zero in on some areas where I think people sometimes get tripped up when it comes to this. Three areas, the object of faith, I want to talk about the nature of faith, And then I want to say something about the warrant of faith. First of all, the object of saving faith. Our text says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not believe anything or anyone, just have faith. As long as you have faith in something, everything will be well. No, it is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see that the Lord Jesus, as he is revealed to us in Scripture, is the object of saving faith. And that was the case in all of those texts that I quoted to you earlier. It is faith specifically directed toward Jesus Christ, which brings the soul into a saved condition. Now, again, it's is faith in Christ as he is presented to us in the gospel, not some kind of Christ a man has dreamed up in his own head or but the Christ of the Bible, God the Son, 
who became man, the God-man who entered into this world and lived a sinless life in fulfillment of all of the precepts of God's law and who endured the penalty of the law, the punishment that we deserve for our sins as the sinner's substitute on the cross and who rose from the dead, certifying that his sacrifice was sufficient to wipe away our guilt and to free us from sin's punishment and who is now seated at the right hand of the Father as Lord of all. It is faith in this Christ, in this person, faith in the person and in the saving work of the Christ of the Bible. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the object of saving faith. Now, as simple as that may sound, I think this strikes at the the heart of a problem that some people have. And that problem is that they're looking to uh, what they think of as their faith, as the object of their faith, and not Christ. Their faith is in their act of faith, or in their decision, or their prayer when they walked an aisle one Sunday. Their trust is what they did. That's what they trust in. Uh, The fact that they responded in some way perhaps to an altar call, or it's in the words they said in a prayer that someone helped them to pray, or a feeling that they once felt, or but whatever experience you might have had or have not had, my friend, here is the real question. Are you believing in Jesus Christ alone and his finished work for acceptance with God? Or are you believing in your believing or some feeling, or some experience that you once had. Even true Christians can struggle with this, and it can greatly hinder their assurance. We get our eyes off of Christ and His work as the basis of our salvation and the assurance of our acceptance with God, and we start looking at our faith, or we start looking at our experience. And you see, if we start looking to our faith as the basis of our acceptance, or to an experience, or anything else of our own, it will leave us in a state of constant agonizing uncertainty. Perplexing questions will torment us. Is my faith real enough? Is my faith strong enough? Are the fruits of my faith fruitful enough? Are my feelings and experiences deep enough, and clear enough, and real enough? Every inadequacy that we think we detect in our faith or in our experience will put us into a tailspin of misery and uncertainty. The Bible, but the Bible speaks of weak faith and strong faith. But you see, praise God, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. Strictly speaking, it's not your faith that saves you. It is Christ who saves you through faith. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is what or who your faith is in. And so the question that you must ask yourself when it comes to this is not so much, am I really believing on Christ or am I really trusting in Christ, but am I really believing on Christ? Am I really trusting Christ? Do you see the difference? You see, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, if Christ alone and his finished cross work and his free promise in the gospel is your only trust for acceptance with God, then it doesn't matter if your faith is weak and feeble and you find yourself at times attacked by doubts and fears. Even so, if your only trust is in Christ, you will be saved and you are saved. 
The Puritan George Downham said it well, a small and weak hand, if it be able to reach up the meat to the mouth, as well performs its duty for the nourishment of the body as one of greater strength, because it is not the strength of the hand, but the goodness of the meat, which nourishes the body. Likewise, it's not the strength of your faith, it's the atoning death and sufficiency of Christ and his finished work that your faith is in that brings you to a saved condition. Let me try to illustrate this. Just imagine the airport at Kabul last year that was being attacked by the Taliban. And here's one of the Americans there who's seeking to be evacuated. Bombs are going off, bullets are flying everywhere, but there are cargo planes that are flying in and landing to pick up people and to fly them to safety. A plane is landed, and this man is convinced that that plane is his only hope of being saved. So he runs across the runway, and he steps up onto the plane. Now, he's never flown in a cargo plane before. And he's still full of fear. As he begins to take off, he's still tense and quivering and shaking. But here's another person there, and he gets on the same plane. But he's not fearful at all. He's calm and rejoicing, and and he's certain that all is well. His faith in the cargo plane is much stronger than the other guy. But now here's the question. Is the man with the weak faith any less saved than the man with the strong faith in that cargo plane. No, they're both equally safe. And why is that? Because it was not the strength of their faith that saved them. It was what their faith was in that saved them. Now, do you get the point? Listen to me. The question for you to settle is not how strong is your faith or is your faith really what it ought to be. The question is what, or better, who is the object of your faith? Fix your eyes upon the object of faith, the Lord Jesus Christ who is set before us in the gospel and is freely given to us sinners. God gives us the permission, as it were, to take him, to lay hold upon him as our own. And dare to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That hope and that trust may at times be very weak and feeble. I may wonder if it's even there. But what little trust and hope I have is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I trust nothing I have ever done or will ever do or will ever be. I trust nothing I feel or have ever felt or ever hope to feel. I trust nothing I hope to be or hope to do. I dare not trust any of that. But I throw myself down on Jesus Christ alone. I hold to Jesus sink or swim. And if you can say that, then you are justified in the sight of God. You are saved and have eternal life just as much as the man with the strongest faith in the world. For it's not the strength of your faith that saves, it's who your faith is in. But now let's consider something else. Secondly, the nature of faith. Well, what exactly is faith? What does it mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you know, it's, you know sometimes we ask that question, but... It's not like the Bible is code language. 
We know what it is to believe. I have illustrated for you. This man believed in this airplane. He believed this was the only way he could be saved was by this cargo plane. He believed it. He trusted in it. He got on it, and he was saved. He believed on it. He believed in it. Well, that's what it means. What is faith? There's sometimes fuzzy thinking about this. Indeed, I'm afraid that, that sometimes in our efforts uh, as pastors to try to explain what it means, we only make it more confusing than it really is. It's simple, really. Saving faith has basically two elements to it. You see, it's our natural tendency because we, we come into this world born under the covenant of works to think that there's some great thing that we must accomplish and we must do to make ourselves right with God. And we even sometimes we view faith in that way. We think, well, faith must be some really, you know, great thing that I do to make myself right with God. But it's not. Saving faith has basically two elements to it. Now, we could say three because one aspect of it is knowing the gospel. Certainly, there must be some knowledge of that which is to be believed. But assuming for now that many or most of you here under my voice this evening already have at least a basic knowledge of the facts of the gospel, well, then faith can be defined as having these two interrelated elements, all right? First of all, faith includes believing that the message of the gospel is true. Believing that it's true. The conviction, the persuasion that the gospel message is true. Now, this element of saving faith is brought out in many places where faith is is described as believing that, believing that. Hebrews 11, 6, but without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that. He is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It is believing that this is so. John six sixty nine. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe and we are convinced that this is so. It's described as seeing and being persuaded that something is true. Faith then believes that Jesus Christ is indeed God the Son and the Savior of sinners, that there is no salvation apart from him, that he was sent from the Father and that he offered up himself as an atoning sacrifice upon the cross that is complete and sufficient and accepted by God so that whoever believes in him is freely forgiven and not condemned. Faith believes that. The believer, those who believe, he believes that God promises to save all those who put their trust in him. And to cast out no one who comes to him for the salvation he has accomplished. Faith believes that. It believes what the Bible says. That the blood of Christ is able to cleanse us from all of our sins. And to reconcile us to God. In other words, again, faith believes the message of the gospel is true. But it not only believes that it's true. Secondly... Saving faith includes the actual entrusting of myself to the Christ of the gospel to save me. It's not merely a a passive persuasion or passive, passive conviction that the gospel is true. Faith actively reaches out now to take this Christ and this salvation that's in him for myself. It passes into active entrustment of yourself to this Christ who is set forth in the gospel. And and this is the real heart, the real essence of what faith is. Go back to the illustration of the airport in Kabul. When the cargo plane lands to 
pick, pick people up. It wouldn't save me just to believe, no matter how strongly I believe, to believe that the plane has landed, that it really is the only way to be rescued, or to believe that it really is, that airplane really is sufficient to rescue me, and that's all that is needed for my rescue. No, believing that all of that is true, though necessary, will not rescue me if I don't step onto the plane, right? I must run to that plane and get on it. I must venture on it. I must risk everything to that plane, trusting it to indeed rescue me and to save me. And so it is when it comes to faith in Christ. It involves the engaging of the will, not just passively waiting for something to zap me one day or to come over me, but going to him, determining to trust him and to believe his promise that as I come to him, he indeed will not cast me out. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Actively fighting against my unbelief. Determining to believe what God has said to trust my soul and my whole salvation to what God has said and to who Christ is and what he has promised. And I choose to cast myself upon you, do or die, sink or swim, and to believe that as you have promised, none who do so will ever be lost, and that includes me. Think of the analogies or illustrations that are used in Scripture to describe faith in Christ. It's described as coming Christ. Not merely being passively persuaded of the truth of the gospel, but believing it and coming to him. It's called fleeing to Christ to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. It's described as receiving Christ, putting on Christ, looking to Christ. All of these analogies the Bible uses speak of an active appropriation of Christ and the gospel and the promises of the gospel to myself. An active entrustment of myself to him to save me. It's also described as simply taking him and the salvation he gives. Taking him. God says, here is my son. In him is all that you need. In him is salvation from from sin, its guilt, its punishment, its power, its presence forever, reconciliation, justification, salvation, eternal life. It's all in my son, Jesus Christ. And here in the gospel, I declare him to you, and I set him before you. And what does faith do? Faith receives him. Faith takes him. Take him as he is freely given to you by God in the gospel as your Savior. Revelation 21, 17, let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Let me borrow an illustration here that might help you uh, using this kind of picture of faith as taking what God extends to us and gives to us in the gospel. I read about a Sunday school teacher. I think I've used this illustration before way back in the past. But I read about a Sunday school teacher who performed an experiment with his children. This teacher had been trying to illustrate what faith is, and so he he had this really fancy, nice watch, and he, he took his watch in his hand, and reaching out to one of the children in the class, he said, now, I'll give you this watch, John, if you will have it. 
And John began to thinking and wondering what the teacher was up to and what he could mean by this. And he hesitated. He didn't believe the teacher meant it. And he didn't take it. He said no. The teacher said to the next boy, Henry, here's the watch. Will you have it? Henry, uh, very modestly as he thought, replied, no, thank you, sir. The teacher tried several of the boys with the same result. Finally, a youngster who was more childlike and trusting said in the most natural way, thank you, sir. And he took the watch and put it into his pocket. Then the other boys suddenly woke up to a startling fact. Their schoolmate had received a watch that they refused to take. One of the boys quickly asked the teacher, is he to keep it? Of course he is, said the teacher. I offered it to him, and he accepted it. I wouldn't give something and then take it back. I put the watch before you, and I said that I'd give it to you, but none of you would have it. Oh, said the boy, if I had known that you really meant it, I would have taken it. You see, he thought it was a piece of uh, trickery or acting on the teacher's part. And nothing more. All the other boys were very upset to think that they really could have had that watch, but they lost it. And they each cried, teacher, I didn't know you meant it, but I thought. You see, no one took the gift, but everyone thought. They all had their complicated theories, except the simple-minded boy who simply believed what his teacher said and got the watch. That's a great illustration of saving faith. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Can you say tonight, Christ is mine? If not, there's no reason why you can't say that this very night. You can have him. That's what God says in the gospel. Here is my son. I freely offer him to you. And the salvation that you can't accomplish yourself, you can't rescue yourself, you can't save yourself. It's a hopeless case. Quit trying to save yourself. Yeah, I remember reading about uh, how sometimes lifeguards are trained. I don't know, I'm not a lifeguard, that that a lot of times they let a guy uh, splash around in the water a little, little while before they swim out to get him. Because as long as he still has hope that he can somehow save himself, it's hard to save him because he's going to drag you under with him. And so they, they wait until the guy's given up, and then they, they grab him and they take him to safety. Well, could it be that you're, you're trying so hard to save yourself that this is the problem? Stop all your efforts to save yourself. And give up on yourself and simply rest in Jesus Christ and his promise. Take what God freely gives in Christ to you, the sinner. Believe him and take Christ as yours and be saved. Do not fear. Believe God's promise and receive Christ as he has given to you in the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But this leads now to something else very important about faith that we need to be clear about tonight. Thirdly, the warrant of saving faith. Now, what in the world do I mean by the warrant to faith? Well, let me explain. 
As we've seen, Christ is the object of faith. Faith is believing that the gospel message is true and entrusting my soul to Christ to save me as he has promised. Now, here I am a sinner, and I hear the gospel. Now, how do I know that I am one of those who has the right, just as I am, to take Christ, to trust him for this salvation, to apply this Savior, this gospel, and this promise to myself? What warrant do I have to believe? By that I mean what authorization or right or, or the condition necessary to qualify as someone who is invited. For example, when a policeman comes to your house, he has to have a warrant, right, to enter. He has to have something that gives him the right to do so, to enter into your house. What warrant is there for me to believe? Or in other words, what is the ground upon which believing in Christ and applying Christ and this salvation to myself is permissible? When I hear the gospel call to come to Christ, how do I know that I have a right to come right now? Just as I am. On what ground can I know that it's permissible for me to believe on Christ and be saved? Take him as mine. Claim him as my own Savior and Lord. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the warrant to faith. Well, it's very important that we realize that the warrant of faith is nothing in us. What qualifies you as someone who is invited and permitted to believe and to be saved is not that you feel so much of this or feel so much of that. It's not that you've mourned over your sins for a certain amount of time or you felt a certain required degree of conviction of sin. No, the warrant to faith has no qualifications. If you are a human being, you are qualified and warranted to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. The warrant of faith, you see, is grounded in several facts that are totally outside of ourselves. First of all, it is grounded in the universal, unqualified gospel invitation. All men, women, boys, and girls are invited and urged in the gospel to come to Jesus Christ. Acts fifteen thirty-eight. let it be known to you that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified. Revelation twenty-two seventeen: whosoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Whosoever will may come. Secondly, the warrant of faith is grounded in the gospel promise. The promise of the gospel is if you do come, you will be accepted. John six thirty seven. him who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Thirdly, the warrant of faith is grounded in the all-sufficiency of the Savior. His blood is more than sufficient to cleanse you from all of your sins, and his power is sufficient to make you new and to keep you saved all the way to heaven, all the way to glory. Hebrews 7.25, wherefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come unto God by him. And fourthly, the warrant of faith is grounded in the command of God. You remember when the, the Jews asked Jesus, what shall we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe on his son whom he hath sent. 
1 John 3:23 and this is his commandment that we believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ. God actually commands us to do so. He commands everyone who hears the gospel to believe it, to entrust their souls to Christ, and he threatens eternal damnation if they will not do so. Now, if God commands you to do something, that's all the warrant that you need. It's always permissible to do what God commands you to do and to do it immediately. You can't obey a command of God too soon. What a wonderful command that is. It's as though God's saying, he pleads with us, he invites us, he sets before us his promises, he sets before us Christ our Savior in his all-sufficiency, the glory and the, the accomplishments of his saving work, and yet we're still reluctant to believe. And so God says, I command you to believe on my son and be saved. What a wonderful command. So you should never look in yourself for a warrant to believe. The gospel offer is free to all, and it requires no prior qualifications in the center. It doesn't say if you feel so much of this or so much of that or do this or do that to prepare yourself, then you're invited to come. No, anything you do short of faith in Jesus Christ is unacceptable to God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Every sinner who hears the gospel is invited. And whoever he is, regardless of what he feels or doesn't feel, if he comes, he will be accepted. And in fact, God commands you to believe. And every moment you refuse to do so, you are disobeying God. Let me tell you another story. I'm trying to make this simple tonight, so I'm using a lot of stories. So I'm hoping it's helping. All right? Now, this goes something like this. I read about a worker in a certain factory who had often heard the gospel. But he was, he was very troubled about whether he really had warrant to come to Christ and to trust him just as he was. He struggled with, surely I, I need to clean up my life first, or I need to go to church, or I need to start reading my Bible, or I need to, to, to feel something that, uh, that I ought to be feeling that I'm not feeling. And he, he really struggled with this. Well, his Christian boss, who was concerned about the guy, he one day sent a card to him. And it said, come to my house immediately after work. Well, the man appeared at his boss's door that evening, and the boss came out, and with a kind of rough-sounding voice, he said, what do you want, John? Why are you troubling me at this hour? Work is done. What right have you coming to my house? John said, well, sir, I had a card from you saying that I was to come after work. The boss said, do you mean to say to me that merely because you had a card from me telling you to come to my house after business hours that you have come? Well, yes, sir, I don't understand. It seems to me that since you sent for me, I had a right to come. His boss then said, come in, John. I have another message I want to read to you. And he sat down and he read these words, come to me, all you who are uh, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And John saw it, you see, and he understood and he believed and he was saved because he understood now that he had good warrant and authority to do so. And so it is, my friend, God invites you and urges you to come to Jesus Christ And he promises that you will be received and saved if you do. But not only that, he commands you to come, trusting him to save you, 
Therefore, it's never presumptuous to do that. And you can never obey a command of God too soon. You say, but Pastor Smith, what about conviction of sin? Shouldn't there be conviction of sin before a person comes to Christ? Well, of course, it's true that no one will ever come to Christ for salvation from sin who's not been convinced of their need of that salvation. But that doesn't mean he's not warranted to come, if he will. You see, some measure of conviction of sin or of your need of Christ is the ordinary way God brings people to faith in Christ, but the conviction of your need is not the warrant of faith. If it was, how would you ever know that you've been convicted of your sin enough And there are people who preach that way. That's why people that center their ministries never have assurance of salvation because they're constantly looking within themselves. You'd always be looking in yourself to see if you have enough conviction. You have hyper-Calvinists who preach a gospel. who say, we're only to preach the gospel to sensible sinners, convicted sinners, those that we know are already regenerate sinners. Well, that's ridiculous. How do I know that? And that's no gospel at all. Because that's a subtle form of works righteousness. How do I ever know I've been convicted enough? And so I'm trying to make myself more convicted of sin. So I can get more and more convicted of sin. So that then I have some hope in myself to bring me to come to Christ. Instead of trusting in Christ, I'm trusting in my conviction of sin. No. You're making a self-righteousness out of your convictions. And trusting in them. That's what that leads to, not in Jesus alone. No, the only way you can know that you've recognized your need enough is by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you come to Christ, then you have. And the only warrant you need to come to Christ is the invitation, the promise, and the command of God and the all-sufficiency of the Savior. Or let me put it this way. Who are the recipients of this salvation? The answer is, of the Bible is sinners. Christ came to save sinners. That's the only qualification you need. It doesn't say sensible sinners, convicted sinners, sinners who have been smelled fire and brimstone and felt like they were about to drop into hell at any moment like Bunyan did. It doesn't say anything like that. Just sinners. Christ came to save sinners. That's the only qualification you need. If you're a sinner, God will save you. If you trust In the Lord Jesus, receiving with an empty hand what God freely gives. If you trust him right now. You see, that's important that you understand that. You're not really understanding the gospel if you still think there's something you've got to go do first. If you trust him right now, this very moment, you'll be saved right now. This very moment. You will go down to your house this very night, justified completely and forever, just as the tax collector in our Lord's parable did. There are no qualifications required. You don't have any qualifications. If you're a sinner, that's all the qualification that you need. If you're a sinner, then you are qualified. Ah, but Pastor Smith, aren't you forgetting that the Bible teaches that we must repent? We must repent. We must repent of our sins if we would be saved. But this is my problem. My heart is so hard. I I don't feel my sins like I should. I don't hate my sins like I should. I don't forsake my sins like I should. I'm not sure that I have true repentance in my heart, which then warrants me to come to Christ as one who has repented. 
Now, my friend, yes, it's true, we must repent, but that's why you need a Savior. Listen to me carefully. Repentance is always joined to faith. It flows out of faith. It's not something that we must do and that we must have before we come to Christ. It is Christ who gives us repentance and enables us to repent. Only he can give you the grace to live a new life of repentance. Repentance is not some work by which we qualify ourselves to come to Christ. Again, you'll never come to Christ because you'll never know, have I repented or not? You never will. In fact, you never will repent without faith in Christ because it's only in union with Christ as his spirit comes to dwell within us that we're given that true godly sorrow that is a mark of true repentance and that hatred of our sin and a heart that desires above all things to, to obey him and to honor him and glorify him. That is a result of union with Christ. And we're only united to Christ when we receive him. With the empty hand of faith, you see, repentance is the end aimed at, but the means to that end is faith in Christ to save me from my sins. It's not a work we qualify ourselves to come to Christ with. You know nothing of true repentance apart from believing that in Christ there is forgiveness for you of all of your filth and your sin, trusting him in what he has done for pardon and acceptance with God, trusting him to give you the grace to hate your sins and to increasingly turn from them. And so come to him and trust him just as you are. And trusting him, know that he has indeed saved you. He doesn't lie. His promises are true. He is the God who cannot lie, as Paul says. Trust him. Know that he has indeed saved you and that he has begun a good work in you and he will complete it until the last day. Quit looking for some qualification in yourself. All the warrant you need is the invitation, promise, command of the gospel to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Bunyan gives a wonderful illustration of this in his Pilgrim's Progress Part 2. Mercy, when she came to the wicket gate and she knocked for entrance, she was full of fear that she would not be admitted because she was afraid it was presumptuous for her to come and that she might not have come in the right way, perhaps. She was afraid that she had no warrant to come. After beating and beating on the gate, she fell down in a swoon and fainted at the door. But then Bunyan said, the Lord opened, and he looked out. And, quote, he took her again by the hand and led her gently in and said, I pray for all them that believe on me. By what means soever they come, as long as they come, as long as they come to me, I receive them. However you are brought to Christ, my friend, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you come to him to be saved by him. And if you come to him entrusting the salvation of your soul to him, he will not be found to be a liar. He will be true to his word. He will not cast you out, but he will, and indeed he has received you and saved you. 
and you can go down to your home tonight rejoicing. Rejoicing. Now, will you do that? Will you come to Christ? Will you believe him? You know, there's nothing more offensive to an honest man when than to not be believed. When he makes a promise. Listen, God is is his truth. In him is no darkness or error at all. There's no deception in God. God doesn't deceive us. He only speaks what is true. He's the God who cannot lie. And he has promised that those who believe in his son shall be saved. Whoever, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your sins are, doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter who you are, there's no exception there. Whoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. Bless his holy name. And those of us who are saved in this room tonight, we're saved because we believe that. Because that's where we've staked our hope. That's where our hope is. It's in that promise and it's in that Savior. That's the way all of us are saved. That's the way anyone is saved. It's taking God as his word, coming to Christ as a sinner, trusting him to save me. Well, may God help us to understand these things and to believe these things even more firmly. Let's pray together tonight. We'll close. Our Father, we thank you tonight for your holy word. We thank you for the simplicity of it. And Lord, we we sometimes think within ourselves that if men could only understand the gospel, that the whole world would immediately believe. And yet we know that old Adam is strong and that there is this reigning suspicion and enmity toward you in the hearts of men that they will not even believe your word. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here tonight like that, that you would have mercy upon them. And I pray that even now that you would draw them to your son, that you would grant them grace to believe the promises of your word, to trust in him, to keep, as Martin Luther said, perpetual unbelief underfoot, to strive against it, to cry to you, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I pray that you would strengthen that faith, that it would rise up to a full assurance of faith. And I pray that would be the case with all of us. Lord, that we would be a congregation of people who are full of assurance and certainty about our salvation. And that would motivate us and move us to sacrificial service and love and devotion to our Savior. And Father, we pray that you would save those in our midst tonight who remain unsaved. Have mercy upon them, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.